This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, Triple R's show all about film, TV and whatever you're streaming. I'm Will Cox. Tonight, your regular host, Flick Ford, is off six. Over the next hour, you've got me. A little later, I'll be joined by my special guest, Dr. Tao Fan. Tao is a research fellow in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Automated Decision-Making and Society and the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University. Um, More from Tao later. Um, We will be discussing two new films. Firstly, we'll immerse ourselves in the shiny utopianism of After Yang, And then we head on a Spanish holiday with Nicolas Cage, playing Nicolas Cage in the action comedy The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, starring Nicolas Cage. Feel free to find us on social media to comment, um, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Um, uh, But first, we have a guest with us. We have Alice McShane, who's the program manager at the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, running across Melbourne until May 7. Hi, Alice. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming in. Um, Firstly, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about this festival and what we can expect from it, because it's been running for a few years now. 15. 15, okay. 15. Uh, And you've been with it for a few yeah, I mean the you know I'm younger than the festival. I'm a real ingenue. Um, no, I've been with the <laughs> I've been with the festival since um, 2015 myself. Um, yeah, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival. We are across ten days from the 28th of April, concluding this Saturday on May 7th. Um, we present films and art, as the title suggests, um, and we're really all about, I guess, like the bigger picture, um, I get, you know, there's a way in which you could really look at human rights issues and human rights topics um, in quite a siloed way and where I, I suppose quite interested in bringing them all together and empowering people with knowledge and with the tools to advocate for um, a more equitable and just society. Great. I, well, you're here to talk to us more about the film side of things than the art side, which is just as well. Absolutely. Uh, right show. The, the, you're on the right show. Um, how do you go about programming a festival like this? Oh, that's a good question. I have a, um, I have two programming committees, thankfully. So I have a features team and a shorts team and they do really incredible work in helping me not only select the films, so watch and review the films, but also source them from festivals around the world. So we look at um, festival programs internationally, you know, Venice, Sundance, Berlinale, you know, smaller ones, um, like Human Rights Watch, we'll look at Full Frame, CPH Docs, IDFA's fantastic, the documentary festival in the Netherlands. Um, and any films that jump out to us, we'll invite, um, we'll ask for, a, you know, a secure link to watch the film. And from there, we'll program our eventual lineup of, you know, 10 to 15 films. Right. So you've got things from all over the world. Absolutely, yes. And a lot of Australian, um, you know, homegrown films yeah. as well this year. Yeah. Okay. So we we're talking a little bit about this um, just before we went on air, that you, you're picking you're picking films, like most festivals will be choosing on artistic merit, essentially, but you choose beyond that as well, don't you? Because it's not just artistic merit, it's about the subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. I sort of wish I could pick along artistic merit lines, but sometimes, you know, really, like, I mean, I I sort of still do. And the landscape's actually getting much, much, much better for this. But I think what used to be the case, especially in human rights filmmaking, was just like, well-meaning people from 
you know, not the communities represented going in, shooting and leaving again. So you can mm. kind of imagine, you know, communities perceived to be disaffected and like white filmmaker after white filmmaker filming them, tape, taking those films overseas, showing them at film festivals, getting all their money, the community's not seeing any change. But like, mm. repres- you know, something about telling their story, rah, rah, rah. Um, so what we're looking for are stories that maybe you know, hopefully aren't traumatic, are empowering, are, you know, at the very least by the communities depicted. Um, And for me as well in particular, yeah, like I sort of said, I'm looking for stories that um, are specific but also, you know, that thing where it's like the more specific it is, the more universal it is. So looking for really specific stories but also do tie into a bigger picture and don't sort of say, oh, look over there, isn't that so sad? You can actually see how it is all interconnected. It's all coming back to power and who holds it and how they wield that power. But it's not it's not all documentary as well, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. We do program some narrative films. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's certainly a world in which we could program all documentaries, but probably just because of my own film bias, I love to throw a few narrative films in there as well. Um, and again, um, something that we were discussing earlier um, is that I feel like people could glimpse at the program because it's a, some very serious topics mm. um, or even just the name of the festival and think climate change, refugees, human rights abuses, the world is a grim place <laughs> and this is going to be a grim bunch of films. But that's not really the case, is it? Because you've got a few that sound like they're quite uplifting. Yeah, yeah. I would sort of even think of it as knowledge being empowering, mm-hmm. you know, Um And hearing these stories being empowering as well, I think there's something so beautiful about coming together to um, listen to stories. That's the way that humans have always understood themselves in the world. Um, You know, the quote that's always stuck the most to me, which I'm sure comes up here very often, which is like Roger Ebert's most famous quote, which is cinema is a machine for empathy. Mm. And that's really what kind of, um, I guess, drives a lot of these stories is just the courage um, and the generosity of the storytellers. So, yeah, we do have films in the program that are really lighthearted, that are really funny. And I think one thing that's really interesting too is when filmmakers are of the communities they're depicting, they often eschew trauma. They often avoid, you know, not kind of showing the most like grim, sad, world vision, Coldplay music, you know. Um, mm-hmm. They really do try to tell stories that are empowering. So I think... You know, if you look at the program, you're going to find satires, you're going to find comedies. But even in the stories that maybe do come across as more challenging, you're also going to find in there the tools, the means, the methods to really make a difference and an impact. You're going to find really necessary and vital truth-telling and an exposure of really, really important vital issues, like thinking about a film like Incarceration Nation. I mean, that's a film that's been put together by Indigenous filmmaker Dean Gibson, and it's a vital, vital, vital piece of truth-telling. Like, we cannot look away from what is happening in our prison system because looking away is what allows it to perpetuate and allows it to continue. And so, you know, we've got um, a panel after that film... Um, April Day, Tanya Day's daughter is going to be there speaking after the film as well. And it's, you know, rather than kind of sitting at home in despair, you know, I mean, sorry, what I should say too is like a reason the festival was founded, you know, there is actually a method behind all this, but the reason the festival was founded, it was founded by law students. And so they were really interested in making human rights more accessible and less, um, you know, dry, less policy-driven or even just deeper than the 24-hour news cycle where you can read something, feel despair and then wake up tomorrow and feel it all over again. So 
the way stories work is they'll sink in and they'll change you and they'll change your perception of the world, but also it'll help you comprehend these human rights stories in a much more deeper and more profound way. So I really kind of hope that by showing these stories and inviting people along and, and listening to speakers as well, it actually will give you the tools to know what to do with all these feelings. So when you read the news, when you see the news, you don't sit there in despair. You can actually understand what's going on and know who to talk to, know how to talk to your friends, know how to talk to your family. I mean, you know, my perception of film is that all it takes is for one person to kind of change things. You know, you don't necessarily need to play to the biggest audience or affect everyone at once. Like if you can build a slowly build a community of change makers, that's really how change happens, just through conversations and stories. I, I thought we might um, talk through just a, a few of the highlights that we're picking out. Um, you mentioned Queen of Glory um, before the show. Um, it looks like it's a it's a comedy. It's a comedy drama about a Ghanaian American academic uh, sort of in, ending up running a Christian bookshop. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. This one was a treat. I mean, the director, Nana Mensah, it's her directorial debut. You might have seen her on um, The Chair, the Netflix um, Sandra right. O. Yeah. yeah, so she's, I mean, she said this is like her one and done story. So if you want to see a Nana Mensah film, you've got to come along to Queen of Glory. Um, so this one played at Tribeca. She starred in the film that opened her off last year, Farewell and More. So yeah, anyway, now she's directing. Queen of Glory is the story of this rising academic. She's called home after the sudden passing of her mother. And she, I guess gives her mother like a more Western kind of burial. She cremates her, but when she gets home and reconnects with her family, she realizes she's going to have to reconnect with her Ghanaian roots um, and put on a more traditional um, funeral. And she kind of gets, you know, the Christian bookshop's still running. Someone's got to run it. So she gets sucked into running her mom's Christian bookstore and like with the strange people that are there as the fellow staffers as well. And so it's a love letter to the Bronx. It's a love letter to being of the African diaspora. And before that film as well, we've got um, Western Edge Youth Arts coming in to give a performance, which is like heavily inspired by the experience of being part of the African diaspora, but obviously connecting it much more to the local experience. So it should be like a really beautiful, funny, heartfelt evening. Cool. Oh, well, there was another one that I wanted to um, pick out um, because it has an Oscar nomination attached mm. to it. Um, the Man Who Sold His Skin, which looks to be a refugee story, but not not a typically told refugee story. Yes, 100%. That's exactly why it was interesting to me as well. I mean, I think obviously given the name of our festival, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, a film like this, which really is exploring the collision of human rights um, and art, I thought would be of great interest to our audience. So it's Tunisia's first ever Oscar nominee for Best International Picture. Um, director um, Katha Bounhania, this um, is, um, sorry, she's a woman, sorry, that's also Bola. Um, but anyway, you know, I'd like it's the program has um, got a lot of women representation in it, which again is just my um, personal bias of um, women filmmakers being pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, so the film follows a um, Syrian refugee who is not able to access a visa and is trying to get to Europe to reconnect with his love. And the one way that he's able to access a visa is he accepts a proposal from an artist to have his back tattooed. And part of that um, back tattoo involves him sitting in a museum for months on end. And it was actually inspired by, you might know the Mona. Yeah, the Mona exhibit. Yeah, I, I thought, yeah, this has, sounds like sounds, a if it sounds story. Yeah, eerily familiar it is. A Mona exhibit, <laughs> part of Mona's typical MO of doing something that you go, hmm, is that a good idea? I, I can't tell, but it's interesting, you know? Exactly. I mean, it's it's a human rights abuse, I would, I would call it. Well, yeah, effectively. And it kind of is that thing where it's, you know, a whole bunch of then like upper crust arts people come along and just sort of 
stare and tut tut and oh isn't this terrible and do not see his humanity at all he becomes an object and so he is dehumanized in the very way that he is dehumanized in the refugee and asylum seeking process so mm. it's a scathing satire if anyone's seen the square it's very um, reminiscent of that but I think takes a really really interesting you know, very, very scathing human rights lens. So rather than like Scandi sending up their own toughy sort of ways, this is kind of someone from within really examining, I guess, like the, you know, maybe like boohoo upper crust, you know, <laughs> it's not to rag on rich people, but boohoo upper oh, crust. No, yeah. Right. I mean, none of us are rich, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> the boohoo upper crust, you know, response to human rights abuses, which is just to sort of like tut tut in a gallery and then wander off. So I found it to be a really fantastic film. It's a real conversation starter, really provocative. And again, Western Edge Youth Arts are gracing us with a performance before that, which is looking at identity, looking at power and that reclamation of the body. So I'm really excited for that screening. And it's also just nice to put on a film that's an oscar nominee like it's kind of you know all killer no filler program excellent and there's another one there's one more that i want to talk about because yes. you, you recommended it fanny the right to rock the closing night film yes um yes. is there a further explanation needed than the title <laughs> um <laughs> well we can read let's just leave it at that no no, no. let's <laughs> Let's okay. So tell us, tell us a, a bit about that. It's it's a uh, Filipino American sisters. Yes. So this one actually premiered at the um, Melbourne Queer Film Festival. To give credit where credit is due, it's a story of these um, yeah American Filipina sisters. They in the 1960s in Sacramento, they kind of start jamming in the garage together and eventually form this band that they call Fanny. Also, I remember that. I just realised. Yeah, I've seen them. I've seen them before. I've seen footage of them playing in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Bowie was obsessed with them. They're one of the first all women bands to like release an album. Um, they're all gay. They're all queer women as well. So as you can imagine, just like completely critically overlooked in their time. But yeah, all the band members are still with us. So this is like a really, really cool tribute to not only their like punk rock success in the 70s but like a vital sort of capturing of their stories as well like it's it's really great that now people are actually ready to hear the stories of this you know this incredible overlooked band and the music absolutely rocks and it is just so funny to see the responses in the time of all these like you know this very male dominated space responding to like an all women lesbian band called Fanny like it's <laughs> it's great music really funny the band are fantastic and that's our closing night film so it's kind of sending everything off with a bang great excellent how many films have you got all up in the program 15 okay good yeah. well, that's a good I mean you know you've got until Thursday Saturday Thursday? Saturday Saturday you've got until Saturday to go out and see 15 films um thank you Thank you so much, Alice McShane, for joining us. The Human Rights Arts and Film Festival is on right now across Melbourne until the end of this week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much again for having me. Um, we'll be back in just a moment with Dr Tao Fan to talk about the new AI drama After Yang. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Welcome back to Primal Screen on 3RRR. I'm Will Cox. Uh, you've just heard Glide by Mitski, a track from a new film, After Yang. Uh, we could have played anything from the soundtrack to that, really, by the great um, YouTube Sakamoto. Um, here is a clip from the film. Uh, it's a black box issue, okay? Uh, so by law, we're not allowed to tamper with the uh, core interior, unfortunately. So what is it that you do here? Uh, well, we are certified with Brothers and Sisters Incorporated to uh, repair or replace up to 12 parts, most commonly in need of service. If you want to take a gander there, 
at the 12 point diagnostic. Yeah, but your diagnostics is just. Uh, well, we hooked up Yang to our certified analyzer, and uh, all 12 parts were in working order. However, the readout did indicate that there was a core malfunction, unfortunately. So. So what? So there's nothing you can do? Oh, there's a couple things we can do here. Um, we could have them recycled at Brothers and Sisters. Uh, if you do so before he begins to decompose, you'll get $1,000 off on a new model, which is great. Uh, if you don't want to have him recycled, which I completely understand, um, we are equipped to turn his head and his voice box into a virtual assistant, and we'd salvage the remaining parts for you. What? But we would have to send the core to uh, Brothers and Sisters. No, 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 that's, that's not going to happen. No, just give them back to me and I'll get a second opinion. Oh, sure, of course. Uh, so that'd be 250 for the diagnostics, please. You're kidding me. Fortunately, no. This is After Yang, directed by Koganada. Uh, in an inter- indeterminate future, a well-off family is thrown into a spin when its robot helper, Yang, shuts down unexpectedly. Parents Jake and Kyra, played by Colin Farrell and Jodie Turner-Smith, got Yang, played by Justin H. Min, a Chinese-made, perfectly lifelike robotic assistant, to help them raise their adopted daughter, Mika, played sweetly by Malia Chandra-Wijaya. Yang seems to be part au pair, part tutor, um, and, and there to help the adopted Mika stay connected with her Chinese roots. But they bought him second-hand, or certified, refurbished, as they say in the film. And when Yang breaks down, Jake finds that Yang's warranty isn't worth a damn and the unit has a far longer history than originally advertised. And the breakdown of this piece of hardware leads to genuine feelings of grief. There's a lot to unpack in this film. So luckily we have Dr. Tao Fan with us. Hi, Tao. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. Um... Tao's research explores questions of gender and race in algorithmic culture. Um, I'm quoting this from a piece in Liminal magazine. Topics such as aesthetics of digital voice assistance, ideologies of post-race algorithmic culture, uh, the corporate capture of AI ethics and AI in film and popular culture. So you must be buzzing with ideas about this film. This film is fascinating to me. I mean, I almost didn't know where to start um, I was sort of when I finished watching it, went home, I was sort of writing furiously notes, just disjointed notes. I mean, it has so many contradictory things to say about race. You know, we have this post-racial family. Kira's played by Jodie Turner-Smith, um, who's British but with a Jamaican background. Jake's played by Colin Farrell, who's Irish. Mika's played by Malia Emma um, Chandrajwajiga, uh, who's Indonesian. Um, and they all have different English accents. You know, uh, yeah. like Jodie Turner-Smith plays with her British accent. You know, Colin Farrell is Irish. And then Malia's American. So this this kind of almost idealised cosmopolitan image of family. Um, yet they're all deeply aware of race. You know, Mika's... Uh, adopted from China and they're essentially purchased Yang as a culture coach, mm. you know, as you say, this like um, uh, au, pair, au pair figure, you know, a robot companion who's there to teach her a few words, provide her with some fun facts and trivia about fun China. Fun facts, they keep saying. <laughs> fun China facts. Fun China facts. Yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to emulate a very, uh, like a, a digital assistant of sorts, right, an embodied digital assistant because yeah. he's always chiming in with, would you like a fun fact? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I suppose there are two levels to discuss it on because there's a ways in which the film consciously discusses ideas like race and AI Mm. and then there's the unconscious ways. Mm. Do you you think – I mean, what do you think they're trying to present and do you think they're succeeding? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, 
I suppose with the post-racial thing, they're trying to giving this sense of a of transcendental race and a transcendental racial politics. And so we have an idealised future where race doesn't matter and we can have these, like, uh, beautiful rainbow families. But it's also stuck in the muck of race, you know, because it's specifically bound around transracial adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I kind of... I'm starting to see this film more and more as a subtle dialogue with the Asian diaspora. Um, you know, the science fiction genre has been so very unkind to Asians, I think. Um, you know, Asian bodies are used as stand-ins for clones or machines. You know, they're used to sort of vaguely signify the inhuman. I know the Asian robot is a trope in Massive. science fiction. Is that right, that you've done some some research on? Yeah, yeah. So I've written about um, Ex Machina mm-hmm. um, and the the robot in that um, cake. Kyoko, um, you know, it, the Asian body is often put as machine-like and that's often building off particular stereotypes of Asian people um, as cold, as impersonal, as disciplined, um, as the body that is entwined with mass manufacturing, replicable, replaceable, disposable. I'm thinking also in Cloud Atlas mm-hmm. um, where we have those clones played by the Korean actress who are just all... Is this... Well, it's fine. So they're all they're all clones of each other and all get minced up and fed to each other. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's you know there's that half of it, but then there's also this sense of like Asianness is used in science fiction to gesture towards a dystopic future <coughs> in, in particular kinds of way. You know, you have like mm. um, uh, the aesthetics of the Oriental used mm. to describe urban landscapes. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to Blade Runner. Blade really. Runner massively. I mean, Blade Runner comes into this. I think. Mm. Don't you think there are callbacks to Blade Runner? Obviously, it's quite utopian, the aesthetic, but Mm -hmm. there's the perfectly lifelike replicants embedded in society and there's Mm. even a bit of a computer-enhanced scene Mm. um, where Colin Farrell is scanning through Yang's memories um, that that it's very much recalls, I think, quite consciously a scene in in Blade Runner. Um, But what did you think of the the aesthetic uh, of... Because I thought it was was really evocative. It's not exactly... um, an aesthetic that I, you know, think we should aspire to um, is a very Elon Musk future <laughs> with these transport between every tr- transport the between tunnels. every location was in a self-driving car in a dark tunnel. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, what what did you think about the the way that it was presented? Everything has a perfect technical, uh, you know, a, a digital assistant sort of vibe to it. Everything's very simple. Yeah, I mean, it's part of this uh, this emerging genre of art house science fiction, don't you think? I'm thinking films of like Her mm-hmm. or Never Let Me Go. I mean, even Ex Machina and Devs, um, the yeah. Alex Garland films, The Handmaid's Tale in particular, I think touches on this aesthetic. This like soft linen, everything feels like this modern Japanese Scandinavian aesthetic. Yeah. Like yeah. I love the idea of dystopia being an IKEA catalogue. Yeah, <laughs> this is what it is to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but and it stands, it's like sort of directly stands against films like The Terminator, you know, these, like, hyper-masculinist AI figures who, like, embody all our anxieties around, you know, the military-industrial complex. Um, It's all around mass manufacture. It's all around grease and oil and dark things. And this is all, like, the the beautiful light shades of dystopia. Even Black Mirror um, plays with that. I mean, plenty of episodes of Black Mirror, the most pessimistic uh, media about the future and technology... um, I've ever seen probably. Mm. But then there'll be someone using a a, a beautiful personal device or a computer screen or something or there'll be a, a beautiful setting and I think, wow, that looks great. Yeah, it's a screenless future, it? a yeah. completely screenless future. Yeah, there, there aren't screens. Yeah, there's um, there's that everything's shot at a real distance too so you mm. don't get intimacy. 
Um, so there are people on um, sort of Zoom call yeah. aesthetic, but they're not holding the phone right up to their face or anything. You just see um, everything from about two feet away. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's borrowing from this visual language that we just have now mm. of when you see someone framed as, in, as you know, from the way, from the, I suppose, like chest up, you understand that they're in a call. Yeah, yeah. And there's no sort of obvious cutting towards that. You just know that they're in a call. Same when they're in the cars, you just hear this ethereal voice and you understand that she's having a phone call. Mm. Um, there are no other prompts to do that. But, I mean, I think it's it's an interesting uh, part of this new genre of sci-fi, though, it's just like it's it's shifting the site of dystopia into the home. Mm-hmm. It's real domestication of the genre in that way. And it means you get to explore these sort of everyday settings, everyday scenarios, everyday ethics, um, really intimate themes like grief and connection like this film does. It's very much about grief. Would you say it's a dystopia? I actually don't think it's a dystopia. I mean, I almost hardly think it's about grief in some ways. Really? Well, um, you, you gestured before. You said everything. everybody's really distant from each other. There's mm-hmm. no intimacy. Mm-hmm. And I really agree with that. I don't think they hardly touch ever anyone. No. Except in the very final scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, and although, I mean, I know that the film is sort of ostensibly about us coming to learn the inner world of Yang and coming to learn his past lives um, before you. Mm. But you got a sense that there really was no closeness between the adults in the family and Yang at all until that moment. I think maybe the opening opening title scene that um, that we, I think, both got a bit of a kick out of, Mm. where the the whole family of four, that's the parents, the child and and Yang, their robot, their robot adopted uh, au pair, um, whatever you want to call him, uh, all in a kind of dance, dance revolution um, uh, virtual thing where they're all just dancing and they're facing the, they're facing the camera. Mm. No, nobody's looking at each other and this mm. is family time. Mm. <laughs> they're all just um, yeah. detached from each other. Um, perfectly in sync. Perfectly in sync. Yet yep. not at all connected. Um, yeah. I mean, on the question of grief, you know, the real grief I actually think is Yang's grief. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yang's grief at the loss of his sort of previous lives. And there is an interesting, I think, sense of like uh, diasporic Asian grief that I think he's trying to gesture towards. And I say that because, you know, there's such a strange... Um, it's a really Asian film in the sense that he explicitly says things like, you know, you know, he's not interested in questions of am I human, he's interested in questions of how, am I Asian? Am how, I Chinese? How yeah, do I know yeah. I'm Asian? How do I know I'm Chinese? I know that I'm you know, like sentient and human in particular ways, but how do I know I'm this? You know, and I think that's so interesting because like what you really get a sense of is you have this robot who's programmed to be this like, you know, Chinese fact machine. <laughs> yeah. um, and yet through the memories you learn that he has no relationship with those facts. He has no sense of his own history. Mm-hmm. And that's in a sense what he's grieving because when he listens to um, Colin Farrell talk about his relationship with tea and it's beautiful and connected, he wishes, he's sort of mournfully looking at that scene as, like as, as if he wished he had that connection mm-hmm. with the ritual of tea himself, but all he has is these empty facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that is such a, like Asian diasporic thing where you know there's a history that precedes you, but you feel very disconnected from it. And, um, and this sense of, you know, the girl herself, uh, what is her name again? Mika. 
you know, the whole film is around trying to give her this false sense of history yeah. by giving her this au pair, this culture coach, mm -hmm. because they have parents who understand they're ill-equipped to give her sort of uh, the culture they feel she deserves, mm -hmm. that she's mm -hmm. been removed from. Um, and, you know... And there's such like an absent presence of Asianness because they're all supposed to be Chinese. I mean, everything's around Chinese, but none of the actors, none of the writers, the director mm. is not Chinese either. Yeah, it very much focuses on Colin Farrell. He's, yeah. he's the lead character <laughs> in a film about race. And he's, um, I know, this white surrogate. <laughs> it is funny because he's not exactly presented as, uh, I mean, he's presented as a little bit quite clueless. I mean, there's yeah. something very funny to me about a well-off man with this beautiful house running a failing tea shop. Yeah. Um, you, you see these shops around, you know, oh, there's another doomed business started by a rich guy <laughs> with time on his hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let him taste failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who's just like falling in love with the Orient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, yeah, uh, digging, himself a, digging himself a hole. It's funny because I picked out that clip that we played earlier and it's quite funny and kind of mm. um, absurdist, you know. Yeah. But altogether, that's not really very indicative of the tone of the film. It's very meditative, very slow. Yeah. Quite melancholy. Um, when I was trying to find the right clip for the film, apart from the fact that there aren't a lot of scenes with lots of conversation and dialogue, um, which wouldn't play very well on radio, um, I found that a lot of the scenes come across as quite saccharine in mm. isolation. Do you, do you think it, it, it felt like that? Yeah, you know, it actually reminded me a bit of The Lobster. Yeah, and I don't yeah. know whether it is because it was Colin Farrell as well. Yeah. Um, but even there's sort of a deadpan melancholiness to it, like the future is incredibly, everyone is just low-key on antidepressants or something, mm. <laughs> where they feel neither highs nor lows. Like even when they're arguing, they are, they're, they win whispers. Yeah. Even when they're expressing joy in the joy or even sadness, when they're, you know, when they're crying because um, Yang is gone. I didn't even know they were crying until someone said you have tears in your eyes. I'm yeah. Like, oh, okay. Um, you know, there's just no it's sort of effectively flat everyone. Yep. Which, like I said, I actually think that's an interesting trope that's often used for Asian characters. Yeah, okay. And I love that it's just like thrust on everyone suddenly. Well, that's a big trope. You mentioned the lobster. It's a big trope that um, or technique that Yorgos Lanthimos, a Greek director, comes back to a lot of the time, director of a lobster and... Uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer, which mm. also has Colin Farrell in it, where I think he, he also does that affectless, kind of totally deadpan, absurd delivery. Mm. But in that film, I'm not entirely sure why. You know, <laughs> I, I don't, that's like, well, it's just a strange technique that he uses, regardless of whether it fits or not. Mm. But he does do a bit of that here. Um, and it is, yeah, oddly disturbing. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it puts you as a viewer almost. That's why before when I said it's hardly about grief mm. because you don't know where to – I mean, it's, a, it's what they say that it's about, mm. but they're mourning it less than they would mourn the loss of a goldfish in a way. Mm. They're just like, I'll just get him fixed or get a new one. Whatever. No, I, I don't know about that. I think that there's a, there's a kind of um, – there's a, there's a conflict between they feel like they should. Yes. They feel like um, their MacBook has just died. Yes. Yes. And it's mainly just annoying that they have yes. to go to the repair shop. Yes. But as time goes on, they feel there's a lot more going on here and I don't know how to express it. Indeed. And it's, human, it's actual human grief. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's Yang's grief again. Yeah. It's, it's like they come into their grief when they recognise that... Uh, he feels that, grief as well. Well, yeah, the human, that's the you know, mm. slow humanisation of Yang over that period. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um. Did you did you like the film? We we've talked a lot about the, the big ideas behind it, but did you like it, Tao? 
I don't think it was necessarily the easiest watch or it um I mean saying that it's understated is almost overstating it. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's such it's so incredibly slow moving. Um and introduces it sets the scene for conversations that it never really addresses or answers in many ways. Mm. Um and I think we co- the whole film is them constantly revisiting you know uh different points of trying to get him fixed mm. and he never gets fixed uh or I don't know that it really just doesn't go anywhere almost and you're mm. sort of just left in these lingering moments. So the director um Koganada he, he has made one feature film before but he's mainly known mm. I believe for YouTube videos is that right? YouTube but- lectures and I know you've You've seen some of these. Yeah, I binge watched a few this morning. Yeah, yeah. I mean the uh, video essays, really. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's like a real. He is a real cinephile, mm-hmm. I will say. And I mean, his this is his Monica Kogonada is um, uh, his favorite director is Ozu. It's Ozu's cinematographer, isn't it? Yeah. The name? Yeah. 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 Or Ozu's uh, co-writer. Or, oh, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you can really see that. Um, I suppose meditation on everyday life and the everyday moments of life that mm. Ozu has in his film. You can see that in this film. Certainly there's so many scenes that are just set in the home mm. that are sort of lingering around the kitchen or lingering around the the um, lounge area um, or in the bed, mm-hmm. um, which I think takes great inspiration from Ozu. But I think it wasn't an immediate sort of like leg – it's not a leg slap movie. <laughs> no. I didn't lull. No, no. <laughs> No, there were no lols. I don't know. I mean, playing it back, that scene with the um, the the, the yeah. Apple Genius Desk guy, yeah. essentially, <laughs> just saying, "Oh yeah, if he doesn't decompose too much, we can detach the head and turn him into a home assistant." I mean, that's that's actually quite that <laughs> morbidly funny. <laughs> but in the context of the film, it's 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 grim. Uh, well, I suppose it is grim anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I just have a disturbed <laughs> sense of humour. Uh, we've just heard Elvis Presley with Love Me, a track which appears not in the film that we're about to discuss now, but it does appear in Wild at Heart, um, starring Nicolas Cage. Um, and Wild at Heart's a movie which has left its mark on this one, I think. Uh, here's a clip. What are you working on next? Well, that's a tough question for an actor to get, but it's fine. Because oh. I'm no longer an actor. I've retired. What? What do you mean, retired? So... What are you going to do now? Live the life of a house cat. Because it's just a matter of time before the great power plant upstairs turns off the juice and we retreat to the black pit of nothingness from whence we came. So tell us about making the rock. <laughs> but you wish you were still making movies like that, eh, Mr. Cage? Has to be nice to have being a star. We're talking about uh, Nicolas Cage's latest foray into self-referential comedy, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Nicolas Cage stars as Nicolas Cage, an actor tormented by career <laughs> anxiety as he tries to balance big starring roles with artistic integrity. Oh, and then there's a crippling debt issue due to his extravagant lifestyle and a broken relationship with his daughter and ex-wife to contend with. When Cage reluctantly takes on a job uh, appearing at the birthday party of an eccentric billionaire superfan, Harvey, played by Pedro Pascal, he unexpectedly finds a new bestie in Harvey, 
which convinces who convinces him not to quit acting for good. Also unexpected, Cage is approached by two CIA agents. Harvey is actually an international arms dealer. Only Cage can go undercover, adapting his acting prowess to spycraft while solving his family crisis and contending with a wild-at-heart younger version of himself. Also starring Tiffany Haddish, Sharon Horgan, Neil Patrick Harris and others, this is a, a knockabout kind of metafictional action comedy about celebrity, friendship and Nicolas Cage. Uh, Tao, what did you th- what did you make of this? <laughs> I'm not totally unconvinced this wasn't written by an AI, to be honest. Like, <laughs> yeah, okay, that's interesting. Uh, I feel like it was produced by some kind of meme generator <laughs> trained on, like, Reddit forums. Yeah, okay. I uh, saw one of those on Saturday. I'll tell you about it afterwards. But, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this perhaps is just, like, I've spent too much time sort of reading uh, wide articles about AI. But <laughs> it, it is like that in the sense that, you know, the way a lot of sort of um, AI generators work is that they're trained in a whole bunch of data and then they spit out something. And that something is never new. That something is like the perfect statistical average of all the other things. Right. Like a, Snakes I, on a plane. Snakes <laughs> on a play. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's, it reminds – I mean, I was chatting with an AI guy the other day and he's just like – the worst way to understand it is like if you're making a soup and you have all these vegetables and you put them in and it never tastes more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. It's like not a yeah. – it, it tastes like exactly the average of a potato and a carrot or something, right? <laughs> um, it never is like this better delicious soup. And this is what this is to me. I don't know what it is. I love Nicolas Cage. I'm a big – Nicolas Cage fan. Um, there's, you know, a lot of nods if you're a Cage fan. A lot of sort of uh, meta moments. There and are nods, but there are nods, and yet it's sort of they feel completely empty. It doesn't feel much like it's about Nicolas Cage. The lead could be anyone. I think. Do you know why? It's because I mean I was reflecting on other films that are like this. JCVD. Yeah. Is this is exactly JCVD? Which is about Jean Claude Van Damme. Indeed, it's about Jean Claude Van Damme who's finding himself uh, sort of. At the what's the opposite of the peak, the trough, the nadir, the, tr- the, the nadir yeah. of, of his career, uh, where his wife's about to leave him, is an incredible amount of debt, and he finds himself caught up in like an absurd action plot. Right. Yeah. Um, but JCVD has sort of this intense vulnerability to it. Mm-hmm. There is a moment in JCVD where he looks to camera, and it, it's sort of him speaking to God for a full, I would say, eight minutes uh, soliloquy. And that vulnerability never enters the frame for us here. No, I mean, Cage feels very generic. I feel like it could have been written as any generic action yeah. star and, and, and that way it wouldn't have made a cultural impact. So the fact that it has Nicolas Cage in it gives it a boost pretty much every way. But I could imagine a version of this with Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt. I mean, yes. you wouldn't have to change much except that neither of them would ever do it. <laughs> but I can, I can, I don't know. I could sure. I give me five minutes on Wikipedia. I could dig up a forgotten action star who'd have a bit more humility. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> about this. I mean, I, I, again, all I could think of was all the really good versions of this. Even the Congress, where Robin Wright stars I as herself. I haven't seen that. No, you haven't seen no, it. No, but she plays a version of herself that she becomes. She sells her identity yes. to a. To a, 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 a film studio, is yes. that right? It's about the future of cinema. To become a digital kind of avatar 
uh, yes. you know, that will star in future Robin. Yeah, but films. it has a wonderful commentary on sort of uh, the ageing role of actresses, uh, and part of her agent is part of her being convinced to sell her image is her agent saying like, "Well, you have a child with a disability." I mean, in I don't know if she does in real life, but in the film she does. She has a mm. child with a disability, and she wants to do she wants to work less. Mm. So the way, well, the way you can do that is by selling your image, and they can create movies on behalf of you, and you can stay at home with your child and care for them. Mm. Um, and the whole thing is about you know what happened to Robin Wright. She was like the star of Hollywood and then had to drop out. Mm-hmm. And it had such a profound thing to say and this says, like, nothing. <laughs> it does it. It does it. And it's funny, like, part of the reason I was saying that it, it, um, it, could, be, it could be anyone is because there's a totally fictionalised version of Cage. I mean, mm. with a fictionalised family, which yeah. I thought was very a strange idea. Yeah, a fictionalised daughter and a fictionalised ex-wife. Part of celebrity is that the blurring of the lines between real and fiction. And I think people, a lot of people know a little bit about Nicolas Cage's, um, you know, personal life. Mm. Uh, people will be seeing this film will probably know a little bit. So it's strange to see that um, faked, you know, or it, it just makes, it takes you out of it. But there's also some really weird editing going on, I think. There's a bit where mm. Cage is asked to help the CIA or FBI, whoever it is. In the very next scene, he's wearing a tux at a party, engaging in some kind of... Um, sort of bumbling James Bond-level spying. And I thought that a scene had been missed. I thought, mm. this, is this a dream sequence? This feels very rushed. Um, and then it just sort of treads water from there. Just um, Yeah, and then there's that subplot with him having his arguments with his younger version of himself, played by a de-aged version of himself. I think there should be a moratorium on de-aging yeah. of actors, yeah. to be honest. It's I did a moratorium on facial recognition and a moratorium on this. Yeah. It's, um, and if anything, they could have gone further down this path of silliness, you know. Mm. I was surprised by how much it pans out as a sort of generic action comedy. I know, because him... I mean, the absurdity of his own acting is enough. Yeah. You know, this almost doesn't rise to the challenge of the absurdity There aren't many something. moments when he actually gets to act absurdly. There's a great yeah. moment at the beginning where he does an impromptu audition mm. uh, um, for a director and he just gives, a, you know, a typically Nicolas Cage over-the-top reading, mm. which is very funny. Mm. And in the context of just standing in the street, it's ridiculous. Um, and then it just doesn't come back to that. It's a shame. Yeah. You know, I read, apparently he really wanted to play Harvey. He wanted to play his own mega fan. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to talk him out of it. They had to talk him out. I was like, that would have been the much better See, version. he's got much better. Who would be playing Cage then? Uh, <laughs> he would be playing Cage as well? That'd be great. I mean, they should do the John Malkovich version where he plays everyone. That would have yeah. been great. Well, you mentioned adaptation as well um, when we were discussing this before, uh, that, that this kind of reminded you with Nicolas Cage plays the writer of adaptation, Charlie Kaufman, and Charlie Kaufman's twin brother. Mm. So, yeah, a dual role would have been really something, I think. That would have been... I mean, I think that's what the young Nicky was nodding to. Yeah. And yet, um, spectacularly fails to deliver. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it's a soup, like you said, that doesn't quite come together. It is exactly the average of a potato and a carrot. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll tell you the one interesting thing about this. You know, I was doing a lot of uh, re- research. 
I was Googling, yeah. a lot of Nick Cage stuff. Research. <laughs> Uh, and he too is like a great lover of cinema, like yeah, um, Koganada, like yeah. the last director. Um, and you know, endlessly in interviews, he talks about you know, you know, during Con Air, that was his German abstract expressionist phase. Uh, yeah. um, and you know, it had come off the back of Vampire's Kiss. And if you really watch that film, he's like gesturing in the same way uh, that you see in Fritz Lang films. And he got to put, bring those faces into Con Air, which is like completely absurd for like the most high culture reference for the most low culture. That's why. I, that's why I love him. It's all the same to him. Exactly you know? it's right. All the same but this tapestry. is a, this, this is what we love about Nick Cage is that it's like the artistry of merging high and low culture. It is is his acting horrible or is it transcendent? Which is it? I don't know. But either way, we come out laughing. This for some reason because it's the average, the middle. Yeah. It touched neither of the things that you love yep. about the absurdity of Cage. Uh, yeah, yeah. It shaved all the edges off. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. We've got a few films that I just want to point out are coming out um, in the in the coming week um, for you to go and see that we didn't have time to talk about in detail. There's a new Australian documentary, Lake of Scars, in which Uncle Jack Charles takes takes us to Jajawarung country, where locals are battling to preserve culturally invaluable heritage and landscape against degradation. Um, it looks fascinating, and unfortunately we haven't had time to talk about it in detail, but it's screening on May the 6th at Lido in Hawthorne. Other new releases this week include Petite Maman, the new anticipated uh, feature from Celine Sharma, whose last film, Portrait of the Lady on Fire, was a favourite on this show a few years ago, a favourite of everybody I've spoken to who's seen it. Um, there's also the new Doctor Strange, which I don't know anything about, and Australian writer-director, actor, Leah Purcell's The Drover's Wife, which you might have heard about uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, Melbourne Cinematheque is beginning a season of Fritz Lang films on Wednesday night at Acme, starting with the classic M. And the Astor is following out on Sunday, I think coincidentally, with a screening of Metropolis. Oh, Nick Cage uh, will be thrilled. Oh, yeah, he's going to be there. Um, the Astor also has a weekend of women in trouble with Memoria and Melancholia on Friday night and Mulholland Drive on Saturday night. Um, three of my favourite films of the century, I mm. think, so far. I don't know. Um, at Thornbury Picture House has a weekend of biographical documentaries, including Regarding Susan Sontag, which is about Susan Sontag, Patience, which is about the author W.G. Seabelt, and Love in Bright Landscapes about legendary Australian songwriter David McComb, who you'll know from the Triffids. And at Nova, Monster Fest uh, brings us uh, some new and classic horror including a screening of Stephen King's 1985 anthology film Cat's Eye, starring a young Drew Barrymore, which I have never seen, uh, and um, a double bill of, of 70s camp in Rocky Horror Picture Show and Phantom of the Paradise, and a new Finnish body horror film, which looks good, uh, called Hatching. So there's a lot going on this week. Um, you've been listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR tonight with me, Will Cox, and Dr Tao Fan. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for joining us, Tao. My pleasure. Um, we, thank you for bringing us, lending us your expertise on After Yang. Um, and Nick Cage. And Nick Cage. <laughs> um, I interviewed him once, I'll tell you that. Nick Cage, really? Oh, when you were in Hobart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He called you in your bedroom. He called me when I was in my bedroom. It was very interesting. It was a fever um, dream. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It wasn't real. No, it was real. Uh, and he's a very interesting man and he just wants to talk about old films. And he was very, yeah. Uh, it's a shame this film didn't really serve him that well. 
Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 